You are listening to audio from Western Meadows Baptist Church. Here at WMBC, we are disciples of Jesus who make disciples through the teaching of Scripture, prayer, and living together in community. If you would like to listen to more, go to our Apple Podcasts or to our website, wmbc.church. Please do not edit, copy, or sell this material without prior permission of WMBC. Thank you for listening. Let me open us up in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for the goodness of your design. We pray that as we um, make our way through this, uh, this, this document that Christopher Gordon has written, uh, that it would be a catalyst for good discussion, that it would um, strengthen and sharpen our, um, our understanding of, of, of how you have properly designed sexuality. Um, and Father, we pray most importantly that it would take us to the scriptures, uh, that it would uh, send us to your word so that your word um, would renew our minds um, and that we would be uh, light and salt in the midst of a dark and saltless world. We thank you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So, yep, there's a, only a couple more copies, so um, looks like we... Got rid of almost all of them. So um, hopefully you've had a chance to read the preface. That's as far as we'll get today. I really want to kind of just give an overview of why I think that catechisms, uh, a catechism like this can be a, a helpful thing um, for the particular moment that we are in. And so uh, there, so we'll do a little bit of a history lesson. So um, first of all, I think according to God's long-term providence, God almost always uses heresy and false teaching to doctrinally sharpen his church. And that's a good thing, right? So now, you know, we shouldn't mistake that and say that heresy and false teaching are good things, right? They're very much bad news. You know, we shouldn't take joy and delight in them. But whenever we are forced to face uh, heresy, false teaching, which will prove to be inevitable in this life, we should take comfort that we hold fast to Christ in his scriptures, we will be sharpened and refined through the challenge. And so if we look at the the overall course of church history, that has been the case. So in the New Testament era church, the main heresy, the main theological challenge that was faced there was, what do you do about Christianity coming out of the Jewish movement, right? We have the the Council of of Jerusalem that happens in Acts chapter 15 to address the question of what do we do about circumcision, right? The Gentiles that are coming in uh, once, you know, of course, the early church was originally began in Jerusalem, was was a was a almost purely Jewish church right at the beginning, but then the gospel goes to all the nations, just as Jesus says, right? And so all the Gentiles start coming in, and so what do we do with Circumcision. What do we do with the Gentiles? Are they required to become Jews first in order to become Christians? And does that mean circumcision, all the dietary restrictions? And the apostles' answer was unanimous and very clear, right? We have Galatians, which was a letter that was almost written entirely for that purpose, where Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love, right? So there's the answer. So a lot of those new, the New Testament uh, epistles that we have comes as a challenge to, as, as an answer to that challenge. In the following centuries, the church faced a number of Christological threats, right? So the most well-known of those was the heresy of Arianism in the early 300s. So Arius was an elder in Alexandria, 
uh, in, the, in the early 300s. And he argued that Jesus was the first and supreme created being, right? And you may notice that there's a little bit of a problem there, right? <laughs> so his, his, his own bishop of, of Alexandria, a guy named Alexander, uh, disagreed with him and said, no, Jesus is truly God, right? Which we would affirm. And pretty soon, the debate between Arius and Alexander, that spread through basically the whole eastern half of the Roman Empire. And so to resolve that debate, Emperor Constantine, he summoned the bishops together from the eastern half of the Roman Empire, with some of them coming over from the western half of the empire as well, to gather at Nicaea to settle the matter. And so that council wrote out the Nicene Creed, and although Arianism did not vanish entirely, and indeed, it's still with us today through the Jehovah's Witnesses, right, that are modern-day Arians. The deity of Christ, which most Christians had always believed by assumption, was given, was made, uh, even, was made, given greater clarity, right? And the Athanasian Creed, that came later, not, not long after, clarifying what we believe about the Trinity, right? And then the Chalcedonian definition, that came after that clarifying what we believe about the hypostatic union of Christ, right? That we believe that Jesus is fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, and he is, he's, he's not a, a blending or a mixture of those two things, right? And then during the time of the Reformation, salvation and worship, those were the theological battlegrounds. So things were ir- irrevocably set in motion when Luther posted his 95 theses, and he issued a challenge for a theological debate, issuing over the selling of indulgences, right? I think most of us probably know that. So for Luther, the struggle was for scriptural reality, that our salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. And the reformers, they rooted their arguments in scripture and expressed that glorifying God ought to be every Christian's ultimate goal. Everything we do in life should be for the glory of God. And we therefore rightly associate the Reformation with the five solas, right? Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to God's glory alone. And so again, out of a challenge, clarity followed suit. So Calvin, he also wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion to make instruction on the basic doctrines of the faith accessible to everyone. And while the Institutes are still worth everyone's time in reading, uh, you know, but, but there's pretty large, they take a good amount of time to read. The confessions that came in the following generations, like the 1689 that we studied last year, right? Those kind of gave that basic instruction of the faith, right? The, the, what we believe and put it down in a much easier, um, in a much more bite-sized form, right? And so, of course, Calvin and most of the other reformers also wrote catechisms. And Calvin went so far as to say in one of his letters to a guy, he said, believe me, monsieur, the church of God will never preserve itself without a catechism. For it is like the seed to keep the good grain from dying out and causing it to multiply from age to age. Now, I think that's a little bit of an overstatement. <laughs> Just a bit, right? So Christ is the one who will preserve his church, right? And even in the darkest moments of church history, Christ makes sure that there will be a remnant of his people, right? but it's just a bit of an overstatement, right? I think that if we do indeed look at church history, catechisms do play a significant role in maintaining the doctrinal fidelity of the church, right? Is a church healthy? Is a church flourishing? Is it growing? And I think if you look at that, 
you're probably going to find, if the answer is yes to that, you're probably going to find catechisms playing an important role. And of course, you may be wondering exactly what a catechism is. And since we're studying through a catechism, that'd be a helpful place to begin. And so if you uh, have read the, intri- the, the, the preface to this, you'll see that on page 7 of the preface, that first page of the preface, Gordon gives this, thought, this, this definition for catechisms. He says, so creeds and confessions, so we studied a confession last year, were originally written to provide summary truths of the Christian faith in the face of great theological error. Catechisms, in particular, provide short, concise summary statements in question-and-answer format on some particular doctrine of the Christian faith. So these documents are intended to help Christians, especially children and those new to the faith, to have their minds trained in what the Scriptures teaches on a given point of Christian doctrine. And so what's interesting is that the origin of creeds and catechisms is actually one and the same. Um, So the first creed is actually the first catechism that we have. So uh, one author, a guy named Ben Myers, he wrote a nice little book on the Apostles' Creed, and he begins that with this wonderful description of how we got the Apostles' Creed. And so this is a a little little bit of a long section to read, but I think it's worth it. He says, On the eve of Easter Sunday... A group of believers has stayed up all night in in a vigil of prayer, scriptural reading and instruction. The most important moment of their lives is fast approaching. For years, they have been preparing for this day. And so that's interesting right there. When the rooster crows at dawn, they are led out to a pool of flowing water. They remove their clothes. The women let down their hair and remove their jewelry. They renounce Satan and are anointed from head to foot with oil, they are led naked into the water. Then they are asked a question. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And they reply, I believe. And they are plunged down into the water and raised up again. They're then asked a second question. Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit, and the Virgin Mary was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was dead and buried and rose on the third day from the dead and ascended into the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead. And again they confess, I believe. And again they're immersed in the water. <clears throat> then a third question, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh? And the third time they cry, I believe. And the third time they are immersed And when they emerge from the water, they are again anointed with oil. They are clothed, blessed, and led into the assembly of believers where they will share for the first time in the Eucharistic meal or the Lord's Supper. And finally, they're sent out into the world to do good works and to grow in faith. That is how baptism is described in the early 3rd century document known as the Apostolic Tradition, and it points to the ancient roots of the Apostles' Creed. The Creed comes from baptism. And so isn't that interesting, right? <laughs> that that's the origin of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed wasn't originally formulated as, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, right? But instead, it was originally a baptismal catechism. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And so, I'm not advocating that we practice that form of baptism, right? Uh, though we do use, um, so, so uh, I think Cole was, the, was actually the first one. Uh, that 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 I that I did use the Apostles' Creed, um, and in asking him that series of questions before I baptized him, we didn't dunk him three times, right? Just once. Uh, and I don't advocate for you know getting naked, rubbing people down with oil, right? Uh, some things are probably best to be left uh, in the early church, right? But 
I think that is interesting that the, that, that the Apostles' Creed is also the Apostles' Catechism. It's, re- it's really a first, a first kind of catechism. And it's also important to note that the confession of the Apostles' Creed at one's baptism was not a meaningless ritual, right? So that the time that the catechumens, were, that's what the people who were preparing to be baptized, that's what they were called, the time that they spent preparing for their baptism, which, again, could have been years preparing for their baptism, revolved around the study of three big documents, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Okay? So through these texts, the catechumens were catechized into the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. So through the creed, they were instructed in the essential doctrines that Christians must confess, must believe. Through the prayer, they were taught how and what a Christian should pray. Through the commandments, they were discipled in how God expects for a Christian to live and given a sure guide for confessing and warring against sin, right? So that was the original practice of catechizing, right? They were taught through those three documents. And if you want a really interesting, um, uh, the last, so um, the first of every, of every month I've been posting sermons from church history, of me reading ch- sermons from church history, uh, because I try every Monday to read a sermon um, from church history, just as a way to fill my cup after preaching on Sundays. Uh, and so the, so the first Sunday of every month, I've been, I've been just recording a sermon from church history and reading it. And so the last one that I shared uh, was a sermon from St. Augustine. And it's a sermon um, to the catechumens on the Apostles' Creed on the day that they were about to be baptized. Um, and so actually the, 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 the little paragraph that I quoted last week um, from Augustine on baptism, where he essentially says that he believes in, in baptismal regeneration, comes from that sermon, right? So there's, <clears throat> so obviously we would disagree with Augustine on that, so know that going in, right? But what's really interesting is, uh, is, is notice the amount of time that he, that he places on defending the Trinity, right? That he is, I mean, he, you, you can tell that that's the theological battleground of his time, right? And he is making sure that the, that, the, that the catechumens that he's instructing, that they know that Jesus is God, right? And he is co-eternal with the Father. And so if you want a little taste of that, right? Again, no, you won't agree with everything that Augustine says, but you can go and, and listen, listen to that. It's definitely a sermon worth listening to. So although the Reformation it saw a return to the practice of catechism. So that was kind of a practice that fell away for a lot of the Middle Ages, right? And the Reformers, they brought it back. But even here, the Reformers, they were attempting nothing new, right? So they brought back the catechism practice, but they weren't trying to, you know, do anything different. They were attempting to correct the errors that had settled within the church during the Middle Ages. Against the Catholic Church, the Reformers actively pursued the theological instruction of every Christian, and that led them back to catechisms. They went back to that ancient process of catechizing because they said every believer deserves to know the basics of the faith. Every believer deserves to be a theologian, right? To know what the Bible says. And the Reformers, they did write fresh catechisms, right? Really awesome catechisms. But they almost always went back to that ancient order. They revolved those catechisms around the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments, right? So again, they, the Reformers were very clear. They weren't trying to do something new, right? Now, I don't believe it's coincidental that the two of the most theologically robust periods of church history were also times when the catechisms were most widely used and valued. 
the time of the Reformation and the period that followed the Reformation, that time of the, of the, of the Puritans, right, and the second Dutch Reformation that was happening over there, right, this period of, of, of explosive theology that was going on. And what's at the core of that? If you read almost any Puritan writer, what they will say is the basis of everything is catechizing, right? They believe that that's the foundation, that that's the beginning of all the work. And if you go back to the early church, what did they practice? Catechizing, right? Uh, and so I don't, think that that's a, I don't think that's a coincidence, right? I also do not believe that it's simply a minor encouragement to us that catechisms are beginning to make a comeback in our own day. So they've fallen out of favor, but slowly but surely there's glimpses on the horizon that they're coming back, right? And I think that that's, that's not a minor encouragement. I think that's a very, very significant encouragement. So it should come as no surprise to anyone that we are in the midst of another theological crisis. The New Testament church wrestled for salvation by grace alone. The early church wrestled for the Trinity and for the divinity of Christ. The Reformation church wrestled for sola scriptura and sola fide. We didn't mention this one earlier. The 20th century church wrestled for biblical inerrancy. That was a big battle, right? And it seems that the battleground for the 21st century is a little bit broader than human sexuality. I would say that it's biblical anthropology in general, okay? The reason I say that is because questions like, what is a woman? That's not trite or comical, right? As, as, as easy it is, as, as it is to laugh at that because of how ridiculous it is that we have to ask that question, right? But instead, it's one of the many warning signs that our secular post-Christian culture is in the middle of a turbulent existential crisis. And we'll get to that next week. I think it's really, introduction, I think it's really interesting that he begins a catechism on sexuality with the first question being about identity. Because this is, it's an existential crisis. It's a matter of identity. What are we? <clears throat> and indeed, the question, what, I think the big question of our day is, what does it mean to be human? Who gets to define what it means to be a human? Are we our own gods, or are we just chimps that hit the genetic jackpot? Makes all the difference, right? How we answer that question. And so there's many sides, many different aspects to that crisis, but I think that there's two that are most prominent. So one is the advent of the internet and artificial intelligence. So there's the whole technological branch of anthropology and how that's affecting us. So historically, tools and technology, they have always, always, always greatly shaped the people who adopted them. And these are perhaps the mightiest tools, the internet, AI, what we have. They're perhaps the mightiest tools that, we, that humanity has experienced yet, so we should not under, underestimate their impact upon us. So for instance... AI is presenting a direct challenge to our modern conception of education. That, and the reason I bring this up is because obviously education is uh, one of outside of theology, one of the play, one of the realms that I uh, love the most, right, and care about the most. But it the, the modern conception of education typically emphasizes the supreme importance of information acquisition. So, what's the point of being of educating a child? Give them a lot of information, right? If we can give them the right information, if they can pass the right test, then everything's going to be good. But if information and efficiency are most important, then setting kids in front of iPads has proven to be at least three times more efficient than basically any other form of teaching. However, I would say, isn't there something unshakably artificial about developing that kind of intelligence? If we're made in the image of God, shouldn't we value what God values? 
And if so, how valuable does God find our perception of efficiency? I mean, show me where in Scripture God could be called efficient by our standards, right? (laughs) Typically, he laughs in the face of what we would call efficiency, right? So call me crazy, but I think that we will soon discover that how children learn is just as important as what they learn. The medium is indeed the message. Now, but we're not going to touch that battleground, <laughs> right? But that's a big one that's, that's, that's growing. The other anthropo- anthropological battleground is sexuality. And that's, of course, what we're going to be focusing on in this study. So the attempts to redefine sex and marriage are nothing less than calling good evil and evil good, right? That's what we're facing. And sadly, many Christians, I think one of the reasons why we're in the place that we're at is many Christians didn't realize how slippery the slope really was when they began to bend their convictions over little matters like premarital sex and divorce, right? And pretty soon, things got out of control. And as we've seen from church history, though, I think that we should be in a place of hope, right? So this is We're in a theological crisis, but what we should be looking for now that we are in a theological crisis is, okay, how can we use the situation to better clarify what we believe? How can we grow from this? How can we become, how can we, how can the church improve through this situation for the future, right? And I think this catechism that we'll be studying is a great step in that direction. So we should note that Gordon himself says that this, that this catechism is not an ecclesiastical document, right? So this is a catechism that was written by one man, and it addresses one topic, right? So this booklet should be received as the resource that it is. So it doesn't have church-wide official status, right? So when we talk about an ecclesiastical document, that's, a, that's what we're talking about, a, a, a document that has a church-wide, a denomination-wide um, authority to it, right? And so the Baptist Faith and Message for Southern Baptists, the 1689 for Reformed Baptists, these would be examples of ecclesiastical documents, right? These are documents that have been put together by a group of people, and they've been widely recognized, uh, they've been widely adopted as authoritative by not only multiple people, but multiple churches, right? Now, of course, as George labored um, last year to to make known to us, even these documents are subordinate to Scripture, right? So they're still only helpful to us if they accurately present to us what Scripture has to say for us, right? But Gordon's clear that the catechism that we have in our hands, it's not even one of those, right? He's written it as a pastoral tool, a tool for us to use, right? So that's the kind of document that this is. And so as we study through these questions, we're not binding ourselves to the answers that are given. And in fact, in question two, I'm going to make a suggestion for, why, for how I think that he could have phrased that question better. So, uh, so I'll probably doing, be doing that plenty of times throughout this study, right? But instead, we're going to use Gordon's work as a springboard into discussing these different issues and clarifying what the Bible has to say about the topics presented. We're studying through this catechism because I do believe it is to a worthwhile resource to use. And indeed, one of the reasons why, why, why are we bringing this catechism and why are we using why why do i think it'd be valuable to use this catechism well gordon says this is probably my favorite thing that he says in the preface uh, at the bottom of page seven he says the culture is daily catechizing us and our children in the ideas that they want to impress upon minds 
It has been our own demise that Christians, to our own demise, that Christians have not taken seriously enough the call to combat this vicious assault on our faith through catechizing God's people in his truth. The great need of the moment is a robust recovery of training Christians in the truths that we confess. And I think that's very true. So I had a youth pastor once tell me uh, that he intended to raise his future children as free thinkers without being indoctrinated. Okay? So, youth pastor. That's a recipe for disaster, right? And I told him so. Because, of course, doctrine simply means teaching, right? That's, that's all doctrine means. And so to indoctrinate kids is to teach them. We can't avoid indoctrinating kids, right? And so it can't be avoided. If you do not indoctrinate or catechize your children, they will be indoctrinated and catechized by the culture around them, probably through their friends or through screens, right? And indeed, that's probably how most of us in this room, that's how we grew up, right? Is we were probably catechized, not formally by our parents, but instead through, through the culture around us, right? And indeed, I think that there's... there's two ways that catechism happens, one, one formal and one infor- informal. So much of our cultural catechizing, it happens informally through stories that our souls are fed with, right? So for instance, at least, at least us that are more my age, right, that were raised on Disney stories, we were catechized through those Disney stories to follow our hearts, Right? That, that, that our heart was what, what was always going to lead us in the right direction, right? And we could, should go our own way, be true to ourselves, right? Regardless of the circumstances, that's what matters most in life, right? And it did it through really awesome, re, through really catchy songs, right? That still stick in our heads today, right? So if I start singing Akuna Matata, right? Uh, you know, it means no worries or it's the circle of life you know and you're gonna have those songs stuck in your head now you know so that's how the culture catechized us right it catechized us with those messages of those stories right and of course that's again that's an ancient practice the greeks they used the iliad and the odyssey to teach their children to read so that was the the basic text that they that they instructed their children with and they used those stories because they wanted those stories to be how they formed the, the children into the values of the Greek society, right? So they not only use those as texts to read, but stories to shape their values and to shape their hearts. And then the Romans, whenever Virgil wrote the Aeneid, they immediately grabbed the Aeneid and started doing the same thing too. And it's interesting if you read the first book of um, Augustine's Confessions, Augustine talks about uh, being about reading the Aeneid, growing up, about being taught how to read through Virgil's Aeneid, and 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 how he and how uh, even though he didn't care about many of the things that were happening around him, uh, he would weep over some of the stories that he was reading in Virgil's Aeneid. Right, so it was shaping his heart, and and it did. It's the second uh, outside of Scripture. It's the second work that he quotes most in all of his writings. So it did fundamentally shape him. Right. And so that's, it's not a question of if, it's a question of what is going to shape us. You know, the stories that we hear, they will shape our children's heart. They have shaped our hearts. And so we should make it a priority to try to shape our children's hearts, to try to shape our own hearts through Scripture, right? And through stories that reflect the values of Scripture. And in fact, um, one of the things that was really interesting is uh, me and Cole have been meeting with another guy 
named Luke, and we have been, uh, and I say we have been meeting, uh, I've made it to one, uh, but we've been reading through the Apostolic Fathers, so the, 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 docu- the, the documents that we have that were first written after the New Testament, right? Uh, and so we started out with First Clement, uh, who, who's prob- that's probably the, the earliest document that we have after the New Testament, and uh, he was writing from Rome, as the pastor of Rome, writing to the church in Corinth. And one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about that, so this is just a couple of decades after the last letter of the New Testament was, was written, right? And it's interesting, if you read that, um, it, he's, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't sound apostolic at all, right? He's constantly referring back to Scripture, uh, so it's never been received as a letter of the New Testament or anything like that, right? But he's writing from Rome, so he's a Roman, and he's writing to Corinth in Greece. And if you read his letter... He doesn't talk about Roman mythology. He doesn't talk about Greek mythology. He doesn't talk about Roman history. He doesn't talk about Greek history. He talks about Job and Rahab and Joshua and the conquest, right? He talks about Moses. All of the, it's almost like the book of Hebrews. It's almost like he structured that letter on the book of Hebrews. He's constantly weaving in examples from history, but it's all Old Testament history. It's all Jewish history. It's all biblical history, right? And so, what, and, I, and I just I found that so fascinating reading that because, again, this is a Roman, and he's writing to Greeks. They have plenty of their own history to draw from and examples that they would have been raised in. But that's not what he's doing, right? No, no, no. He, the church, they've been shaping themselves according to not the stories of the culture around them, but instead with the stories of Scripture, right? And so he is in Rome, writing from Rome. He's able to write to a Greek congregation, and he knows that they are catechizing their minds with the stories of the Bible, with the Old Testament stories in particular, to where he knows that he can make a passing reference to Rahab, and they'll get it, right? And I think it's tragic today I think that's one of the reasons why the church is in such a rough place that it is, right? Is that you're more likely to walk into a church and be able to have people understand office references <laughs> rather than understand a reference to a, to a story from the Old Testament, right? And so I don't think that the church will ever be in a truly healthy place until, until uh, we need formal catechisms, right? But also until we've started to catechize our imaginations according to Scripture, right? And again, that doesn't mean that exclusively Christian stories, but also stories of people from church history, our brothers and sisters, and and fiction stories like the Pilgrim's Progress that explicitly bathe themselves in Scripture and have have biblical themes to them, right? So that's informal catechizing, right? But also, and one of the reasons why we're studying this is I think that, that we should have formal catechisms as well, the process of formal catechism. So I'm a firm believer that memorization leads to character formation. So whatever we consciously start putting into our minds will eventually seep down into our hearts and start shaping how we live, right? And I think we see that in Psalm 119, right? I've stored your word in my heart. Why? Then I might not sin against you, right? So he's saying, I'm going to stuff God's word down in my hearts, in my heart, with the intention that eventually it'll start leaking out into my hands and in my feet and in my tongue, all of the actions that I do, right? 
Uh, and so I think formal catechisms, that, that has a, a great benefit, right, to, to shoving biblical truth into our minds that it'll start seeping down into our hearts. And so, um, you know, so we do, we do a catechism with the girls called a, a Catechism for Boys and Girls. Um, and technically we do a Spanish version, so it is a little bit different from the English, from the English one. Um, but, 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 it, but, it, but it was based on that, and it's almost, almost the same. Um, and so we, you know, obviously Eowyn is six, about to be seven. So, um, so, so, you know, hope not, not a, not a ton of fruit to that yet, uh, and praying for that fruit to come. But there was a conversation that happened, uh, just a couple of months ago that with Eowyn that, that made me think, that made me, gave me a, a, a greater perception of the importance of catechism. So we were talking about something. I think it was something about the life of Jacob in Genesis. I wish I, I wish I could remember the passage, but we I read a verse of the Bible and I said, "How can it say that?" And Aowen said, "Well, it's wrong." And I was like, "Is is it wrong? You know, can the Bible be wrong?" And Aowen said, "Well, it was written by men, right? So men can, you know, men can be wrong. So the Bible could be wrong too." And I didn't say anything. I just said. Yeah. That is true, it was written by men. And then she follows it up and she says, yeah, but they were also inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, so she's thinking to herself, because that's one of the questions of her catechism, right? Is, who wrote the Bible? Men that were chosen by God who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so, and she starts thinking, she says, no, but they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit can't be wrong. And I said, yep, you're right, the Bible can't be wrong because it was written by men who can be wrong, but they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who can't be wrong, right? So this isn't wrong, so we have to figure out what, what this is saying, right? So, so this might look wrong to us, but, but what's going on? We know that the Holy Spirit isn't wrong, and we started talking about the text, right? So she reasoned her way into biblical inerrancy, <laughs> right? Without me telling her, without me telling her, you know, like we have to believe everything that the Bible says because the Bible is true, Right? But no, because questions were, because those questions, those, those, you know, those kind of pegs were put in place to where she had a proper place to where she could start climbing, right? And I think that, that if we do that in our own minds, that's what we give ourselves with catechisms, right? So I've said, I've said before um, on Sunday morning, and, I, and again, I don't think it's an exaggeration, but um, if we memorize the, the, the full 52 questions of the New City Catechism, which isn't a hard thing to do, right? Um, might be a, a bit of a challenge, but not a, not, a, not a terribly difficult thing. I think in a lot of ways we'll be a lot better theologians than probably the majority of pastors that are, that are serving today, right? Uh, just from memorizing those questions and having those down and in our hearts, right? And I don't even... The New City Catechism isn't even my favorite catechism, <laughs> right? I think we're going to get to a catechism about the ordinances where I'm going to disagree with, with a particular wording of what the catechism says uh, about the ordinances. And so, um, and so, but I think it's a great start. It's a great beginning catechism, right? And it has a lot of resources to it. And so I think that <clears throat> that's true for us. I think that if, we, if there was something that would be well worth our time to devote ourselves to, um, it is catechizing ourselves, <laughs> right? And then for us who have young children, I don't know if there's about anything that would be more important that we could do for our kids other than catechizing them informally through good stories, right? Than by formally catechizing them, giving them uh, clear instruction in the scriptures. And, um, and if you want to, um, I didn't bring it, I left it at home, um, but there's these really great books that the, um, 
oh, what's the, uh, what is the, um, Askel, what's his? Yeah, yeah, what's, what's his ministry? The Founders, yeah, the Founders. So they, yeah, they have, they have a series of three books called Truth and Grace books. Uh, and so they have, and so those books are for different ages of kids. So the first one is uh, from ages two to nine, I think. Um, so we haven't, so we haven't gone beyond the first volume, right? Um, and uh, so, but each of the volumes has a catechism that's age appropriate to the to the to the kids that are there, and gives um, and gives suggested scriptures to memorize. Um, so some of them are verses, some of them they go on to passages, and then it gives you things like the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the list of the apostles, things like that to memorize, and even some hymns also to memorize. And so if you want it, you know, uh, a good little a good little book to get uh, that that gives a that gives a good guide, not just with a catechism to go through with kids, but also that gives you know that gives. Um, a list of scripture to read. Those are great books. Um, and the third volume, I think it's supposed to go, it's for uh, children 14 to 17, I think is so. Um, yep, it goes through the, yep, it goes through the, it takes you through the, a, a Baptist version of the Heidelberg Catechism, which that's my favorite catechism, by the way, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which is what this is based off of. Uh, that's what Gordon used. But, um, but that third volume would be really great for adults to go through. <laughs> so um, to, memorize, to memorize the Baptist version of the Heidelberg Catechism and to learn those, those scriptures that are there too, right? So, um, but yeah, so if you're looking for a great, for a great place to go to, those, those three volumes, uh, they're, they're excellent, right? So, but as for using this catechism, so my hope for this series, uh, it's kind of a nutshell of the history of catechizings and why of catechisms and why I think catechizing is such an important practice. So my hope for this catechism is that through studying these questions we will ground ourselves ever deeper into scripture. So again, not just what Gordon says, right? I'm going to disagree with him on a couple of points, but what scripture has to say about human sexuality. And I also hope that this catechism will help us to prepare for future conversations on these topics, whether that's with family members or friends or a neighbor or a coworker that we would know what we believe and most importantly why we believe that from scripture right and i hope that this study will be will particularly serve parents for those parenting young adults working through this catechism together could hopefully be a slightly less awkward way of talking about these things um, probably still awkward but maybe a little bit less awkward right if you have this to to, to go through And for we who are parenting young children, I pray that this study will serve to prepare us now for those later conversations. So that's what that's what I hope mostly to get from this study. And then go ahead and pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father, uh, Lord, I do indeed thank you for uh, Christopher Gordon and for him putting together this resource for us to use. Um, Father, I do pray that it will be a launching pad um, to Great discussion. I pray that your hand would be upon us um, as we think through these issues in the coming weeks. Um, Father, that you would sharpen us, that you um, would give us greater clarity um, on what we believe your word tells us, and uh, that we would be ready uh, to, to, to answer anyone who would ask us for the hope that we have in you. Um, and so, Father, um, go with us the rest of this week. May we... Um, May we stay rooted in your son, Jesus Christ. May we 
indeed be lights to the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.